You're listening to episode 52 with Roughhouse Records CEO Chris Schwartz here on Take It Personal Radio. Yo, Take It Personal. You're checking out Take It Personal with my band. Yeah, yeah, y'all. Checking out the Take It Personal radio show. Yeah, yeah. It's your boy Farrell Monch. You already know what it is. Right now you're checking out the Take It Personal show. You nothing but the real hip-hop. Hip-hop. The way it should be. Should be. Should be. Should be. Yo, what's up? This is Cool Keith, a.k.a. Dr. Octagon, and you're checking out Take It Personal with my DJ 360. DJ 360. Full for that ass. Now, for that ass. Now, now I'm cool with my man. They playing nothing but that authentic, classical, boom bap shit. Check, check them out. Check them out. Check them out. Check it out. This is Marco Polo. Yo, check this out. It's the Soul Brother number one, Pete Rock. This is DJ Premier. You're live and direct through the speaker. And you're checking out. Take it personal. Take it personal. What up, though? This is Merce. This is DJ Muggs from Cyber Shield. This is Dell the Funky Homo Sapien. You are checking out Take It Personal. And introducing in this corner, A-A-Rock. The one they call Aaron Wade. Yeah, chillin' with my people. And over there, Marjorie the announcer. That's it. No, no famous. That's it. Marjorie the announcer. Take It Personal. With my people spinning that fly shit. You heard? Hip-hop, stay winning. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest. For once, we don't have a rapper like KRS or a producer like Pete Rock. We have a guy who's a legendary figure in hip-hop, who, who's monumental in, in the Philly, not just in Philly, but in really in the hip-hop scene, and, and who's helped bring us so many great groups and classic albums. We have Mr. Chris Schwartz. How you doing, Chris? Hey, how are you today? There's so much I want to get into, but let's kind of go back to the to the early stages. I want to know, because I've heard the interviews, and a lot of it is, you know, Cypress and, and Fuji's, and we'll get there. But I want to know about Chris. So I want to know how it started, why it started, and really kind of take us back, the listeners, into the whole early days of, of Rough House, if you will. Right. Well, it actually started, I was a musician. And I mean, I'm still a musician, but I was trying to be an artist. You know, I joined the service when I was 17. That's when I started really playing in bands and stuff. And I, uh, when I got out, my best friend that I grew up with, uh, his name is Jeff, Jeff Coulter. Jeff and I were massive Kraftwerk fans. We went to see Kraftwerk uh, in 1974. It's Valley Forge Music Fair. And uh, they had their song Audubon, which was, um, you know, their big hit song. But they had put a lot of records out prior to that. You know, Jeff was a drummer. He basically, like in his house, he had this room with like his drum set up. And I came back, it was all keyboards. And he was really into keyboards now. Like, um, you know, all analog uh, sequencers and everything. So we put this group together. We were called Tangent. And we were doing a lot of electronic music. Um, you know, I was really, really into like Fripp and Eno, and um, we had bought a Roland TR-808 drum machine. And uh, we had bought it because uh, up till then, 
you know, um, drum machines were basically factory pre-programmed. You know, they were what they were. They were for like guys who were like played, um, you know, organ in, in weddings and bars and stuff like that. And they had like a rolling compulant. And it was like a doo-doo, And that was it. You couldn't change it. You couldn't do anything to it. And so um, we knew about this machine. We uh, read an article. Um, somewhere that the Roland Corporation was coming out with a programmable drum machine. This was a big, big deal. And uh, there was a store called Medley Music in Ardmore, a guy that worked there named Tom Metcalf. And they didn't have it yet. He said they weren't going to get it for a while. And I forget what happened, but something about there was, it, it was a demo that was in a store down in Washington that they had a relationship with. They had it, they had it sent up to this store, and we bought it. And um, now we had a way to really program our own drum patterns. And um, so we were doing, this was 1981. We had joined a bigger group. It was kind of like a talking heads type of group. They're called Rhythm Lines. We'd done a bunch of shows. And then Jeff and I left that group to do like more commercial dance production. I went to a studio on North Broad Street called Virtue Recording. Uh, the guy who owned it, Frank Virtue, was a Philly old timer. And he had a business deal with uh, a guy named uh, Vince DeRosa, who owned a company called Soundmakers in New Jersey. Soundmakers, in the 80s, pressed up all the vinyl for everybody in New York. Uh, Sleeping Bag, Tommy Boy, Next Plateau, uh, Cutting Records, all those labels. So Vince and Frank started their own label. So when I, went up, when I went up there to play these demos, um, Vince was there and, you know, uh, Frank, they listened to my stuff. They said it sucked. And then I played in the hip-hop group I was working with. Uh, it was called Kid Fresh. And they they liked it and uh, gave me 500 bucks. And from that day on, I decided I'd be a, a record producer doing hip-hop. This was uh, 1980, probably around the beginning of 82. Were you into hip hop? Because obviously in Philly you had a, a lot of that. As but... much as anybody else, because at the time, yeah, uh, you gotta remember this is 1982. It was like Grandmaster Flash, uh, the Sugar Hill Gang. You know, there wasn't a lot. There was two things. There were the Sugar Hill records, right, and then a couple other things, and then you had all the like electro funk. You know, the Nucleus and all that stuff. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was. I mean, there was really, it's funny, Questlove pointed this out. When you came right down to it, in 1981-82, there was really about not even an hour of music for a radio, for a radio station to play in, in, in what was known as hip-hop or rap back then. I always tell people, is it so funny that there was never a record section that said hip hop or anything that w there was ever that you can go to and reference? I remember we had to order records. It literally took two weeks to get one single. And then you'd have yeah. to order off of that single they'd have in the inner sleeve what was coming out. And you'd be like, hey, what's going on with that Johnson crew record? Or what's going on? You know, it was like ridiculous. Yeah, time. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was it was crazy. And the thing is, and also I like too is that they call it rap. You know what I mean? <laughs> the rap section, right? In a record store. And he, I think even till this day, if there were, you know, a lot of record stores that, you know, the independent stores, the ones that are still out there, the very far and few, they still call it the rap section. You know, when it's, when we all know it's hip hop, yeah. right? So, um, so I did that for a while 
And then I, I, I took a job at a record label and uh, I answered an ad for this uh, place called Nice Town Records in West Philly. And uh, it was a guy named Ted Wing. It's a one-man operation. I showed up the first day and I'm looking for the address and there's this daycare center. I knock on the door and Ted's mother answers the door and she's like, Ted isn't here. And she said, it'll be in her car. She makes me wait. And I have to sit in this little chair that's like 11 inches high because it's like a day cushion, all right? Ted arrives and he gives me this list. And he goes, this is a list of retailers that report to the Billboard Black Album chart. You need to call these stores and get them to, you know, take our record and, you know, stock it, and make sure they order it and give them some free record. He showed me how to work the chart. So the record I was working with, the Bill Cosby Live at Gradeford Prison record. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was this really bad stand-up comedy record that Bill Cosby had done uh, back, I think, probably in the 70s. I'm not sure when it was recorded. Ted, uh, through the prison, somehow had finagled the rights to it, but he didn't have the artwork. And he had, like, a rendering done. So working this record, right? So I was, I'm there for, like, a month and a half. I worked a couple other records, too, but they all sucked, right? And um, so there was a day when I decided that I want to start my own record label. And I went down to Ted's office to talk to him about something. And I see these records um, like stacked up against the wall with these like bright yellow labels, right? With like magic marker designs on them. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm looking at these records and it's Schooly D, Gangster Boogie. And I'm like, oh shit, Schooly D. You know, because I I heard him on WHET, Power 99. And... um, and I knew who he was, West Philly, song Gangster Boogie. Ted said, oh, Schooly was here. He wanted us to distribute his record, but I told him I wasn't interested. And I'm thinking, really? We got this, like, really crappy Bill Cosby record, and Schooly, he walks in here, and, you know, I wasn't interested. My age is young. My money is green. I shot all the lady with my gangster name. My dad cut the record down to the bone. They always got me rocking on the microphone. Come on, young lady, cool out and chill. Check my man out on the wheels of steel. Cause the law rhymes the law. And you see young lady just dancing on the floor. I got Schooly's number. And I called him up. And uh, I told him who I was. And I said, look, you know, um, I can help you, you know, uh, with distribution and all that stuff. So we met up, met with his lawyer. Now I'm doing Schooly D Records. We do PSK, Gucci Time. A lot of interesting things had kind of transpired. Um, that record was really, uh, the PSK Gucci time was the first real hip hop record in that particular genre. Uh, I had not seen or heard of a record like it before it. That makes any sense. PSK, we're making that dream. People always say, what the hell is that mean? At that time, I remember seeing that record up in like this indie store that I went to. And the fact that it was one, this bright yellow label, two, that it was like this hand drawn spaceship on one side with no writing. And the other side right. was just like tag style writing. And it was like, you you were just drawn to it. And it was like, what yeah. the fuck record you, is you this? Know, it's, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. It's like you're telling me it's because it, everybody, you know, when I talk to people who know about these records, right? 
We talk about the record, and we always end up talking about the label, too. You know what I mean? The actual label on the record, because it, it was, I mean, look, you've seen a million records like it since it's been out, or, you know, hand-drawn labels, but nothing like that, you know, because at the time, it was just so, it was so ghetto, you know what I mean? It was the it first was real like, independent, like, movement from start to finish, the label, the writing on it the rhymes and yeah. and the beats were just raw. And the fact that those were made beats and not sampled. Now, no, mo, no one right. talks about this, but the fact that like that particular record was sampled, remember that kiss, kiss them for me song. It was really one of the first like hip hop songs to really be sampled in like pop music too. Well, it's, uh, I mean, a lot of people, uh, Susie and the Banshee, Chemical Brothers, uh, everybody is sampled the Beasties. And what's, what's really crazy is that that record, we recorded it in a, uh, eight track studio in Center City, Philadelphia that was built for recording the Philadelphia Orchestra. Wow. wow. And, um, and the, you know, the studio had no outboard gear. There was nothing, but, this huge plate reverb. And I don't know if you guys know what a plate reverb is. It's a, it's a, um, it's like this big wood box. It's about, you know, 12 feet long and about seven feet high. And inside it is this massive spring. And it's what they use like in the big studios back in the, like in the dark ages of the recording industry to create that real reverb. And they use it like in movie studios and everything. So, he puts his reverb on the snare and the kick drum. And it was like nothing out there. And if you listen to those songs, and uh, I'm going to do a shameless plug here. If you listen to his new album, he's got a song uh, um, that we just uh, that we just did with uh, Ice-T and Chuck D called The Real Hardcore. And I'll send you guys a, uh, a link. Back in the day, I was deep in the streets. All about my money, motherfucker beats. Then I heard this cold player named Schooly D. Motherfucker sounded so G to me. Rapping Parkside Killers, that's PSK. Shit goes hard this very day. Six in the morning, cops at my crib. I did this hit the floor, y'all know what I did. The high, the symbols, uh, right? He uses the symbols almost as like an accompanying musical instrument, rather than just like it's part of like the rhythmic structure of the drum of the drum track. You know what I mean? So it's like the main and part. It's like you know, uh, you have to. We have to go back and listen to it to know to understand what I'm talking about. It's like, and I've noticed it now on like on a couple new things that he's had, he's using that kind of like that cymbal crash that's like, doom, chang, chang, chang. It's really, really awesome. It's, it's, it's musical, you know? And, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really that, that record, you know, the PSK and the Gucci Time song really bought him worldwide acclaim. 
uh, just because it was so unique and different. And, you know, look, we were, we were independent and we, and I told you earlier about Soundmakers, right? Yeah. Uh, where we were getting the records done through. Uh, I was up in New York and I was at a record store in Manhattan called Downtown Records. And I saw a bootleg of, um, of PSK and um, it's distributed by Warlock Records. And we found out that it was some deal that Vince had done with uh, Warlock Records, with Adam Levy's son, or Morris Levy's son, Adam. And Vince said he had to do it in order to get paid from, uh, to get distributors to pay him. I found that pretty hard to believe, is that what distributor would stiff this guy who presses up everybody's records, right? Mm -hmm. So we end up leaving, we end up leaving Soundmaker. Problem was, the only other pressing plan around for us was Dismakers. And Dismakers wouldn't take the account because the owner of Dismakers, Mars, was good friends with, um, with the guy from Soundmakers, with Vince. So I got a company called Peter Pan Records in Newark. And Peter Pan was a children's record label that had their own pressing facility. Hello, girls and boys. I'm your Peter Pan storyteller. When you hear this sound, you turn the page. So they didn't do outside clients, but I showed up there with all these orders from distributors. And they're like, all right, we'll do this. And I got, I got distributors to pay us like a dollar COD for, for each single. And so we ended up getting the records pressed up and distributed through Peter Pan, which was kind of cool. And um, there was uh, John Leyland did an article uh, in Spin Magazine that basically caught everybody's attention. And next thing you know, uh, we did a deal with, uh, with Daniel Miller's company, Butte, with uh, Rhythm King, and we got the money from them to do the Yellow Record, the PSK album. And we did the first hip hop tours ever of the uh, UK, Europe, and Canada. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I took it for granted then because I didn't realize what we were doing at the time. But, you know, going to places like Scotland, it was like, you know, people were throwing bottles and cans at us, you know, on stage and everything because they've never seen this before. They've never seen a DJ and like, you know, uh, an MC. And uh, so we did that. And eventually we did a deal with Jive. And, um, you know, I think Jive with uh, one of the greatest record labels in the world and Barry Weiss, brilliant record guy. I think they kind of missed the mark. Um, they were like, well, we need to establish Schoolie at Black Radio. And I'm like, why? We're selling records, you know, because his audience was predominantly white. And and I think that really kind of fucked the Schoolie's head a little bit because, you know, the first record he did was In My Black Enough For You. And I... Um, I think that the jive, the whole thing of jive, I just think, I don't think any of those records measured up to the first two, Saturday night and PSK. So, um, so after the jive thing happened, I had, uh, while I was working with Ted, we did a session at a place called studio four in Philadelphia. And while I was there, I met, uh, Joe Nicolo for the first time. And uh, we were in the session with Ted. Ted was a little bit of a braggart, right? Ted from nice town. And he was bragging on something in the studio. And I guess I rolled my eyes and Joe saw it. So when Ted walked out of the control room, Joe was like, how did you end up working for that guy? I said, you know, look, it's not my dream job. And I'm, you know, I want to get into the record business. And Joe's like, really? Like, so do I. So Joe gave me his card. 
right? And I kept his card and his number and then went back and I ended up managing Schooley and everything. So while I was managing Schooley, uh, and right before he signed to Jive, I asked, I called up Joe. We had a meeting. We decided we we're going to start a record label. We're sitting in the lawyer's office and there's a cassette in front of us and um, on the table. And Joe picks it up and it's from a rock group, Rough House, R-O-U-G-H, right? And Joe said, you know, this is a good name for a label. I said, yeah, but we need to, you know, make it something different, you know, R-U-F-F. And so that's how we came up with the name. And um, we did a deal with Enigma Records, which was a uh, West Coast distributor. They had distribution deal through Capital, through SEMA. And it was all like about as alternative as you can get, like uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, stuff yeah. like that. So that's what that was that college sound. Let me tell you how left field this label was. I had... I had bought a car, I was Jaguar XJ6, and I lived on um, Frankfurt Avenue in Philadelphia. I parked my car in front of the apartment, and somebody broke into it, and they got into the glove box. Now, when we were at Enigma, they gave us a bunch of CDs, right? And when the person broke into my glove box, he stole everything except any of the CDs that were on the Enigma label. That's how, <laughs> that's how obscure these records were. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, yeah, so we did a year, did a year there. Uh, we did Mac money and, uh, DJ QST. We did, uh, we did a couple records of no consequence. And, um, then one day, uh, this guy, Rick Chertoff, he was doing producing the Hooters and Tommy Conlon studio four had asked me if I wanted to come up to Columbia to meet the president of Columbia. And I went up there and had a meeting with them. And uh, they asked if I wanted to bring our label there, do a boutique label under Columbia. I said, sure. And uh, that's how we, we started. Do you think they were just given out that opportunity at that time because they just didn't understand or know hip hop? I mean, th that's a pretty... Uh, no, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Um, Rick Chertoff, would come by like rough house was in this room, this like, uh, next to studio four. And I was doing mailings. I was working easy E NWA tone, low young MC. I was working all these records. Right. Cause what happened was every major label was courting me to sign Schooley. The ones. So we ended up signing Schooley with jive cause they, you know, they offered the most money and everything. Um, but the ones who ended up not being able to sign Schooley were calling me to work records. And because I had set up the first street team distribution system, like I had the whole thing down. And as a result, other people started calling. And next thing you know, I'm like one of the, the, the biggest hip hop, you know, record promoters in the business. As a matter of fact, there was a time when Joey and I could look at the hot rap singles chart and billboard and 20 of the top 50 hip hop songs in billboard. We had something to do with either with him as a mixer engineer or me as a promoter. Um, so yeah, we were, we were kind of right for picking cause we were at the top of our game at that point. And so when, um, when Rick Chertoff, you know, was down there doing the Tommy Conwell record, he'd see like, you know, I had like these, I was doing these mailings, the UPS, I had records out, you know, stacked in these things out in the hallway and the mailers and everything. He'd always come in and talk to me and he saw, you know, working records and knew what Joe was doing. So 
Uh, so the, the current president, whoever that was, of Columbia Records had left. And Tommy Mottola had bought in Don Einer, who was, uh, who was head of radio promotion for Arista, I believe. And, um, and Donnie came in and, you know, him, him and Rick got on well. And I guess Rick told me, said, look, there's these guys in Philly who would, you know, would make a great label here to do this. And I, I think that's what, what, how we ended up coming there. And was Joe a part of that, that team as well? I mean, was that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Joe come to the meeting though. Yeah. I mean, you know, cause it's funny cause Joe is that, he was that mysterious dude that like produced music for, you know, seven, eight, three or uh mellow man yeah. ace. And you know, which foreshadowing mellow man ace was send dog's Send-Dog, brother, yeah. which was crazy. I'll tell you this, you know, here's the, here's the one thing about Joey. If my life depended on it. Okay. On the mix of a hip hop record, right? He's the one I'd get. Cause back in the eighties, there were three guys who knew how to mix hip hop. Now, of course, there were other people who had success and, you know, everything like that. But the, like the mix hip hop the way I think it should be mixed, right? And that was Joey, Rick Rubin, and Arthur Baker. Arthur Baker was a beast. Oh, yeah, dope. The reason for Joey, and let me just tell you a little bit of background on Joey. Joey was the lone man on the totem pole at Studio 4. Studio 4 was made up of Joey, his twin brother, Phil, right? And uh, a partner named Dave Johnson, right? Who was really more the studio manager. Joe was the low man on the totem pole. So Joe got relegated to the late night shift where it was the hip hop artists coming in, you know, to do their demos and everything on, you know, while Phil did like the rock records during the day, right? It was cheaper too. Yeah. And so, well, that was the reason because it was cheaper at nighttime. So, so what it was is that Joe you know, the thing is, like, back in the 80s, right, if you had a hip-hop, right, a hip-hop project, you go into a studio, you get this white engineer who doesn't know hip-hop, right? Here's what they do. They go to, like, you lay down your the, the, you lay down your beats, right? And the first thing the guy's going to do, he was going to make it all antiseptic and clean. You know what I mean? Because that's what, that's what engineers do. They clean everything up. Um... Uh, if you listen to like, you know, like you ever, you ever hear a demo, like uh, probably, you know, a cassette demo, like in the eighties, right? Kids would take the decay on the bass drum cause they don't have the outboard gear. So what they do is that they take the decay and they just take, turn it all the way up because to them it's like making it louder. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And Joe, what he did was, was totally counterintuitive to what ears did. Joe would not only not like, he would make the kick drum not only dirty, he'd make it bombastic. You know what I mean? And really like he put that real like that grunge on it, you know, and make it big and everything. Make the make the, the drum tracks like just this you know, it's just something most engineers weren't doing. He developed this whole kind of like um this aesthetic that that, you know, when you, when I hear it because I can tell I can tell when Joe's mixed a record. You know, I can hear it. And if you look, listen to all those records, all the pop art stuff and Jazzy Jeff and the Hilltop Hustlers and Schoolie, MC Breeze, all that. It's got it's got that thing. You know what I mean? So, um, but that's Joe's craft. That's what he does. He's a studio guy. You know what I mean? That's where he's comfortable. He's comfortable in the room. He was never. I'm not to say he. It's not that he wasn't comfortable. I don't think on the label side, 
he just didn't really seem to have much interest in what happened with the record after it left the studio. You know, he just wants to move on to the next record and get paid. So yeah, Joe did come with me to the first meeting. We, you know, do we do this deal with uh, Columbia? It was, it was cool. It was very cool. It was a big deal for me. I mean, you know, I go into the meeting and there's, um, it's in Don Einer's office and there's like eight or nine people in there and they're all like department heads and they're all sitting on this sectional couch, like, you know, two parts of the wall. You know, I um, go to sit on the couch and Tommy goes, no, Tommy Matola goes, no, sit here. And he has a chair facing everybody. And uh, they say, well, tell us what you've been doing. And so I said, all right, well, this is it, you know? And I sat there and I talked to these guys for like a half hour. And I told them about what I did, about how I treat, you know, DJs and retailers like gold. If I tell somebody I'm going to mail them a record, I don't wait till I'm doing a mailing. I do it right then and there. So they get it like two, three days later. It's like, wow, this guy really just sent it. You know what I mean? Because I took my craft, I took my craft very seriously. You know what I mean? And, um, and so Tommy, Donnie get up and they go, welcome to Columbia Records. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. And next thing you know, I'm walking the elevator for Chertoff, right? So, Coming from independent distribution, doing it for so long in the streets and everything, to suddenly be there like having a deal with CBS, you know, the big red machine, that was a big, big deal, you know? And um, I was uh, I was on cloud nine. I can imagine. I mean, obviously you guys had no idea what it would turn out to be, and you know, there was, there was a lot of success with pop art as far as like Philly hip hop goes. But I mean, now in retrospect, I mean, Rough House and Philly International, those are like the two biggest record labels that you can say out of Philly. I mean, I would almost go as far as to say, I know this, that we sold to date like a hundred, almost over 140 million records worldwide. That's crazy. And I don't know if Philly International sold that many. I, I doubt it. I doubt they did. I mean, Philly itself has such a rich history of music, whether it's like Dick Clark's American Bandstand, Bobby Rydell, Frankie Avalon, and then, and then obviously the whole Philly soul thing. But really, you guys have helped even though a lot of your artists are not from Philly, the fact that right, right, the fact that Philly had a label that now, you know, separated itself from say New York or Cali was really, really big and important for the city itself. And you gave a lot of people uh, an outlet they didn't they didn't have. And it seemed it's funny because it seems like it started with Schoolie D, so to speak. Joey and I credit Schoolie constantly. I mean, he's the reason. And uh, let me, I'll tell you something about Philly as well, too. Philadelphia, it, like within its fabric, incubates groups. And the reason is, it's not so big that people don't know each other, but it's big enough that people don't hate on each other. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm talking about the creative musical community of Philadelphia. If that made any sense, you know what I mean? It's not like this town where everybody knows each other and like, you know, nobody wants to see anybody else get ahead. It's just that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a major American city, but it's just the right size. You know what I mean? And I think it's, it has a lot to do for, for, for its musical heritage. I think that has a lot to do with it. It's a very proud city. Like when you, when you hear, you know, Patty LaBelle or Hall and Oates or even the dead Milton mm-hmm. Philadelphians right. are very proud to claim them as, Hey, this represents my city. 
but you and Joe did something bigger than than you guys. I'm sure you guys could have ever imagined. It's so crazy. You know, when I wrote the book, uh, I went to do acknowledgments in the back of the book, and 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 originally I did not want to fall into uh, what we call the wedding trap, right? Like I figured, oh my! If I have to thank this person, I got to thank that person. That yep. person, I was just going to do something really simple. But of course, I could do that. And um, so I start like writing acknowledgments. I realize I can't just do a few people. What I realized is there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that the label had not only directly and indirectly you know, impacted each other. You know what I mean? Like I didn't realize I had a, I had a couple hundred employees over the time. I didn't realize that. I didn't really, you don't really think about it like that, you know, but people come out. So let's talk a little bit about Roughhouse Records and, and let's, before we even do that, let's tell the listeners out there, you do have a book out. It is called Roughhouse. And there, yes. there's two books I read this summer. It was private. It was not private party. It was Howard Stern's uh, comes again. And it was your book, Chris uh, rough house. So right. uh, great reads, short read, which I love because I, I don't have the attention span to read 600 pages, but it, it basically, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea. I, I'm <laughs> going to say this, the book originally, but first off, originally the book was called smash. Okay. And they were telling me about search engine uh, compatibility and stuff like that. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, rough house, right? Yep. But uh, I had a lot more backstory and a lot more detail in there. And, you know, when in the book writing process, right, what happens is that you turn in your manuscript, right? And they, you do a couple things, you're in Word, and then they go to a PDF format, Right. And once you're at the PDF format, they do these edits and you can accept the edit or you can um, deny it, right? Decline it, right? Mm -hmm. I found myself just accepting them because, you know, I got into the the mindset like, well, they know what they're doing. These guys are, you know, what they do. I kind of look back on that and I I regret it just a little bit, you know, Uh, because my daughter was the first to point out that, you know, they did. It did take a lot of the detail out of it, but also it's about pacing. For a music memoir about a hip-hop label, they were telling me nobody's going to want to do 350 pages, you know? They just, nobody, nobody's going nobody's gonna to be into that, you know? So um, I kind of, that's what happened. Um, it was about to keep it paced. They wanted music moments, music moments, you know? Well, you definitely have the moments in there. So let, let's talk about some of them because I know... You know, we have listeners that range from 30 years old all the way to 50. So some of them don't even have a clue that some of these artists were on Rough House and, and then some of them grew up to, to these very records that you are responsible for. So uh, we know how Rough House began. We know Schoolie was kind of like the, the link, if you will, that brought you and Joe together. You had groups like the Fugees, you had Cypress, you had Crisscross. But one in particular you had, and something happened, it slipped away, or maybe Tommy's, Tommy's crew, if you will, gave you a little uh, strong arm, but you had nasty knots. Let's talk about yeah. Let's talk about that. 
before blood. I take out my fronts, then I start the front. Matter of fact, I'll be on a manhunt. You couldn't catch me in the streets without a ton of reefer. That's like Malcolm X catching a jungle fever. King poetic, too much flavor. I'm major. Atlanta ain't braver. I pull a number like a pager. Cause I'm an ace when I face the base. 40 side is the place that is giving me grace. Now wait, another dose say you might be dead. And I'm a Nike head. I wear chains that excite the feds. It ain't a damn thing gonna change. I'm a performer strange, so the mic warmer was born the game. Now why did you do it? You know you got the mad fat fluid when you rhyme. It's halftime. Yeah, now I'll tell you I got bullied out of it. So what happened was um, MC Search of Third Base bought two projects to Columbia. One was a soundtrack for a movie called Zebrahead. Uh, originally, he was he auditioned for it, and uh, they cast Michael Rappaport in his place. They're the same guys. But they asked, him, <laughs> yeah, and they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah, and they asked him to do the soundtrack. So a month and a half prior to this, you know, I partied a lot, and I used to hang out at After Hours Club, and there was a club in Philly called Revival, and the manager of the club was a guy named. Uh, Greg McGarra. Greg and I would hang out in the wee hours, you know, doing drugs and whatever. And um, he was always playing me the live at the barbecue on Wild Pitch, right? Mm -hmm. And he kept saying, man, you got to find this kid Nas. You got to find this kid Nas. And I said, well, dude, he's already on Wild Pitch. You know, it's like, it's, you know, nobody's going to let something like this go. And for, and so Nas had been to a bunch of companies and nobody wanted to sign him. And Search bought him to Columbia. And at the time, Joey and I had tons of money in what we call pipeline revenue, meaning that they owed us money. But you see, they don't have to pay you to, until they're contractually obligated to pay you, right? So we had a lot of money in the pipeline. So Columbia, reluctant to sign Nas, right, decides, okay, let's do this. They tell Search, take it to Rough House. If Rough House takes it, we'll support it, blah, blah, blah. So Donnie Einer calls me up and said, Chris, uh, I want you to have a meeting with MC Search, and he's got this artist named Nas. And I almost couldn't believe what I was hearing. I'm like, oh, okay. So Search, Nas, and Faith Newman come down to Philadelphia. We had lunch at the Spaghetti Warehouse and did the deal. So now we're making a Nas record. So I put out the zebra. I put out the Zebrahead soundtrack, which bombed. Uh, but one of the singles, and the first single on Nas, we was halftime. Yep. So we put this record out, and I forget. It could have gone number one. I forget on the Hot Rap Singles chart, but it did very well. I mailed out the first ever copy of the source in the school ED mailing, yep. right? John Schechter is from Philadelphia. So him and Dave Mays came by and, you know, they gave me this like early version of the source. It was like a, a two page thing or whatever. I, and so John Schechter comes by to visit, right? And he's asking me, you know, we're just talking. He goes, Oh, by the way, he goes, I heard you signed on. I said, yeah. He goes, do you have any music? And I'm like, Oh yeah, I've got, Five songs right here. And he goes, mine, could I? I said, yeah, no problem, dude. Take it. But you know, don't, you know what I mean? Don't. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we're good. Donnie gets a phone call from Dave Mays. <laughs> and Dave Mays proceeds to tell Donnie, 
Nas is going to be the biggest record in the world, and we're putting him on the cover of the magazine. Oh God! And the record's not even out yet. Yep. Right. What were those five songs that you that were on the sampler? I, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I wish I knew. There's just no way I could even pull it out of my head. Now, given that that particular album had the greatest producers of all time, was there any tension that Joe wanted a piece of that from a production standpoint, or did everyone? Back no, off? Joe was too busy. All right. Joe. Joe. No. No. Joe never lacked for production. So what happened was um, one day Rose, who was head of my retail promotion, said, "Chris, I just got this. I just had this really weird phone call. They're telling me up at Columbia that Nas is coming out on Columbia." I said, "Well, that's not possible because he signed to Roughhouse. He's a contract." So Joe and I call up Donnie, and Donnie proceeds to tell us, "Well, you guys need to come to New York." We go up there, and Donnie said. And he shows, he's showing me a fax from Tommy Matola. <laughs> and in the fax, it's about Nas being on Rough House. How did he end up on Rough House and not Columbia? And then at the bottom of the fax, it was like in these big letters, you fucking asshole, is what he was saying to Donnie, <laughs> right? So Donnie's like in a real jam. He's like, I need your help. And, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, looking back in retrospect, you got to remember at the time I, I had big records out, you know? And I kind of felt like I needed to do this favor for Donnie. So we agreed to let them buy us out. And so that's what happened, really. And here's the thing. If I didn't do it, I just, you know, and then I'm going to tell you something, too. That, that was like, you know, in the, in, the, in the first, like, you know, four years at, at, at Columbia, right, at Sony, I was I was a bit of a wimp, you know, I basically, because you got to remember where I come from, you know, and, you know, to have a distribution deal from major label, I didn't want to upset the status quo, and the thing is, I didn't know how powerful I was, I didn't realize it, like, I was a Twinkie that couldn't taste itself, you know what I mean, and um, I would see Nas all the time in Europe on tours and stuff. He wanted to talk to Fuji's and he'd always, he always told me that he goes, man, I wanted to stay on rough house. I wanted to stay on rough house, but wow. you know, I, um, it's crazy. I, mean, I you, did what I did. You're coming off the success of, of, of Chris Cross, but really Cypress Hill 91. I mean, that was a huge album. So you, yeah. I, I figured you, you'd have carte blanche to just basically do what the hell you wanted to do. Well, about doing what the hell I wanted to do was about, it was yeah. about, well, you they can't... had a record. They gave a record away. Yeah. Well, Jay, what do you think it would have taken to, no, look, to, to, to buy out Nas? Here's the thing. <laughs> they gave him an opportunity. I totally get where he's coming from. Donnie was in a predicament. You kind of can't bite the hand that feeds you. I get what you, you did, but can you imagine having yet another classic album under that Rough House label? That's... Oh, my God. Um, oh, no. You'd well, still be selling well, units. I, well, let's put it this way. I passed on House of Pain. I passed on Arrested Development. And everybody is like, well, the roots, the roots, the roots. Well, Quest, Quest was, Questlove was my intern at Rough House, yep. right? Mm -hmm. I gave him $2,000 to make the video for Pass the Popcorn, right? It's me, the brother Quest from the SQT. And he's black thought, the boy you know it. Funky. The rhythms I recycle sometimes prehistoric. The mic for the popcorn's like it's metaphoric. metaphoric so many different factors in the question style. A rhythmic father end up giving more than one child. Abstract solo is coming from the heart. All the way from Philly, from the West part. Relax 
your mind and let your body be at rest. Flow in slow mo and let the brother manifest. Yeah. Now the second verse has been born. Born to kick, come, I pass the pop. Yo, it looks like another one coming around. It looks like another one coming around. It looks like another one coming around. Questions with the set, And so the thing is, the reason that we didn't do the roots is because we had the Fugees. And if you look at the early edition of the Fugees and the Roots, they're almost like the same group. And it just wouldn't have made sense. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know how to do two artists that were so similar, you know? Let's talk about the Fugees because the early Fugees and uh, your backs against the wall Fugees are two different kind of Fugees, right? So right. blunted on reality. That was for lack of a better words, an underwhelming album. Would you agree? Yeah, but, but the thing is, I thought it had its moments, though. It, it but did. yeah, as a whole. It did, and I think with, thanks to Salam, those two remixes almost gave them another lifeline, if you will. And I want to know, you know it best, what transpired between that and, say, the score, which changed the game? Um, basically, I think, I think when they had, we had all the remixes done, and they're out on the road. They toured constantly, and they're meeting people, and they're at Hot 97 every day. I got Clef a uh, studio that went in this big, um, in this big um, road case with the, with the, you know, where you could make a record anywhere you want. And um, they took it on the road with them, and the create just like with just like with Cypress Hill, the creative process never stopped. It never stopped. So by the time they went to make. The score, mm-hmm. it was almost like on a creative level, there was a different group. Much different. Did they record that with like a chip on their shoulder, knowing that, you know, their first album did not have the sales that I guess people anticipated for it to have? And, and maybe there was a point between the two albums, right? That when I remember Clef and uh, Miss Hill called me. And they taught, they said that they, that they were going hardcore and I wasn't sure what they meant. You know what I mean? I mean, I know what hardcore is, but I didn't see how it would, how it, how it was related to them. I think that they, they had something to prove with the second record because they wanted, they wanted to definitely be accepted within the hip world of hip hop, you know, it's a true incredible group, you know? I think the first album was actually more of a hardcore. I think the second album became smooth and perfected. And no one really realizes, yeah. but, but Wyclef really was a force to be reckoned with. And it's like, I feel like he got let out of a cage and he's like, you know, I can play instruments, right? <laughs> and it was like, it, it, it's like, instead of sampling, sample me. And they just got a, a swagger to their production style and what they were doing. And they became a whole new group and, and they were cohesive. Finally. I mean, Lauren was the front off the first record, but on the second record, I mean, I was even bobbing my head to Praz, you know? Oh my God. Praz on, um, uh, on, uh, on ready or not. Ready or not. Yeah. It's so pri- It's so tasty. Oh my God. And you know, here's the thing, man. Praz doesn't get the props that he really deserves. Praz put the group together. Praz came up with the hooks, right? And so, you know, he's like really an unsung hero of the group. You know, when they, when they, when they delivered the first six songs from the first record, um, I called up the manager, David Sonnenberg, and, I, and, and, the, and the thing was, Praz was like dominant rapper. And I said, David, I, you know, 
this is this ain't gonna work. And he got Clef on the phone, and Clef said, "Oh, don't worry, man, I got you." And literally a week later, I got it, the tape, and all the songs. Proz was more in the background, mm. and why Clef Smith were out front. Wow! So he he actually was responsible for forming the group, and then he took the back seat. Yeah. To uh, yep. to Lauren and and Clef. Lauren went from a girl mm-hmm. to a woman on that on the next record. The score was like. It, I, like like Dre said, they were so comfortable. It seemed like they just matured over a course of yeah. A few years. I, well, here's the thing, but it was two and a half years. You know, the first album was selling six to eight hundred copies two over two years after it was released. Yeah. It almost felt like they got a real producer, though, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, look, the the score is one of the greatest albums of all time. Forget hip-hop, just in music in general. I mean, it's it's that yeah. kind of a, a record. But the jump is something you rarely see. You see good debuts or you see really stellar sophomore you know, albums. But this was something that just was... Clearly, you guys, when you heard the music, you knew it was much better. You knew it was going to be big. But did you ever think it was going to be this big? No. No. Who whoever predicts anything like that? Nobody. The career that it spawned, like, obviously, everyone had their own solo career. But Lauren, in general, it took on a life of its own. And she became as big as, say, Madonna or, you know, whoever. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I still, you know, I'm working with her right now. And... I still will contend she's one of the greatest singers in, in this day day and age. If anybody doubts it, all they have to do is listen to the Pusha T coming home. Oh right? yeah, that was a great record. Uh, featuring featuring Lauren Hill, produced by Kanye West. And you know, uh, I was talking to the head of Motown the other day, uh, Mark Byers, who's from Philly, and he said it's it's her bringing it. She's like doing it. And wow, what did he say? In true, yeah, in true Lauren fashion, you know what I mean? Like all the best things that you love about her, she's bringing to that song. What is it that you think is the reason that she chooses not to be as active as everyone in the world would like her to be? She's almost like the female Andre 3000. Why? Uh, well, uh, he, 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 I'll tell you what, yeah. because she is active. She is active. She tours constantly. She spent the last year, 10 years touring because she did not want to deal with the machinations of the recorded music industry. So she just kind of hit out on the road performing. Now, we've seen her show many times, at, you know, the, the Lauren Hill show. I mean, the fact that she doesn't or can't play the music the way it was recorded on her solo record, it's so irritating and hard to be a part of that, yes. that well, audience. Well, I mean, yeah, this last year, though, she's been doing the miseducation. And a lot of the songs, like almost just like the record, but I know what you're saying. The tempo it's, is. Yeah, yeah. Because she hasn't put out any new material. Basically for her, she said, if she had to do the songs the way they are on the record, she'd die from boredom, you know? Uh, but you know, there's a lot of groups, uh, the Grateful Dead, Zeppelin, you know, you guys probably all too young to ever go to a Led Zeppelin show, but Led Zeppelin sounds nothing. Everything they do, none of it sounds like the album. I'm a conspiracy theorist, so I had some notion that because there was all that mishap with who produced that record, that she wasn't actually allowed to perform them the way that yeah, they were. Yeah, that's um, what I thought too. You know, I, there was no, like, no, no. I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you that something else too, right? So those guys that claim that they did this and they did that, right? 
Right. So how big was that record, right? As big as they get. So what have they done since? No, it's I, I, nothing. Think, I think they're making the money nothing. still off of that record. <laughs> They've done nothing. And it's it, the whole thing was such a joke. It was the same reason why she did put out, you know, look, you guys, you guys don't know, you read, you know, Sony basically did not want her to make a record, number one, right? They wanted another Fuji's record. Right. They wanted mm-hmm. all these producers, they wanted all this stuff that she didn't want. And they gave her such a hard time about it, right? And then they, they didn't want her to, you know, they wanted a picture of her scantily clad on the cover and all that stuff. And she ended up getting a rendering done. So yeah, when she was being given all these accolades and these like, you know, these Grammys and all that stuff, she was angry. She was really, really angry because in her mind, if she was a man, right? Right. None of that would happen. The, the, the lawsuit and everything, none of that would happen if she was a guy. That's true. Chris, I'm going to ask you something r- real like, uh, this is a little heavy. Uh, I, I worked at, at Capitol at the time, but when she did her first solo record, she had gotten pregnant. And the rumor that always was floating around was that the label was so upset because they knew that they couldn't promote the record with sex appeal. And I mean, they were really putting a lot of money, energy, time into this. And the rumor was that they really asked her to consider having an abortion. And, and they kind of say, have you heard anything like that? Cause that's been floating around forever. No, I was a label. Well, uh, maybe you mean, they would have asked for that. No, I meant Columbia, not you, but. No, 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 I know, I know, I know what you're saying, but you mean like Sony is up now. Now. So they embraced her pregnancy and and they, they kind of went with it. No, they were, they were, they were pissed. I know that. Uh, But, um, yeah, no, that was, um. Well, let me think about this for a second because there was, um, she had, think about this. Um, yeah, she was pregnant and, um, the way I remember it is that they, she almost wanted to stop doing music because it kind of went away from everything she ever believed in. Yeah, it was pretty ugly. It was really, and there was that horrible rumor that started, you know, she did an interview on Howard Stern and one of the guests made this like fucked up comment and Howard repeated the comment back. And then next thing you know, it was like, it was, so she said it, she never did, mm-hmm. you know, about, so, the, about um, the white people. So I was raving about your record and everything, you know, uh-huh. and then um, this guy calls up and he goes, Hey, Howard, man, I'm a disc jockey. And I'm telling you, I saw Lauren on. MTV. Okay. And she was screaming about how she would hope, this was the quote he said, that no white people would ever buy her record. <laughs> I think the quote was, she would rather starve. Yeah, starve. She would rather have her family, her children starve, than uh, have white people buy her record. She, and this is something we talked about all the time. It was about um, the backlash, you know, at black radio. You know, will the black audience, you know, because this was after Ready or Not. And will the black audience accept the Fugees after all this pop success? And she talked about this very intelligently. And some some listeners said, oh, it sounds like she'd rather kill her babies than have white people buy her record. Mm. That's what was said. And it never came from her. It was really awful. Yeah. She was always been surrounded by a lot of controversy or conspiracy. How did you and Joe manage such colossal 
personalities, whether it was Clef, whether it was, you know, Be Real and, 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 and Lauren, of course, like that there's a lot more than just being a record owner. You have to manage egos, personalities, and there, I, I can't imagine what you guys have had to endure. Although you, you've reaped well, greatly the benefits, you know, but you know, if you, if you listen, if you watch the uh, video acceptance, the acceptance speech for uh, Cypress Hill at the, um, for the walk of fame, mm-hmm. they thanked everybody. Right. But B-Real said, but the people that we really need to truly, truly, truly thank was Rough House Records. Mm. I also want to say thank you to Joe Nicolo and Chris Swartz for taking this group on right here. You know, a lot of, like Mug said, a lot of, a lot of labels passed on us when we were shopping our, our music. We were the only label that said, that didn't tell them that they couldn't talk about weed and this and that we were completely the opposite we were like oh man let the good times roll you know and um we let them do what they wanted to do and they actually took less money to sign with us than they were they were offered at other labels wow that's that's pretty cool we were always considered and Karis Wen said this to me one time he goes you know people in Rough House you know they say you guys are really known as like a real artist advocate label you know, and uh, that's that's actually true. You know, we were because because the thing is, you know, I tell people, what's the easiest, most easiest way to get success in the record business? You know, what's the quickest way to get from point A to point B? Well, find self-contained artists, right? Artists who know how they want to be seen and perceived by their audience, and who can produce their own songs. Right? Yeah. Now, artists like that don't grow on trees. Okay? But we were never, like, I'll never be the guy to put the other boy then. Right? Uh, I never understood. Looking for female singer, but, you know, it's like, who knows what, who knows, how, how can you be looking for something that you don't know exists? You know what I mean? I never understood that. I never understood things that were put together. I don't really understand singers who go into the studio to sing a song that they didn't write. I don't get it. There's a lot of stuff like that that's out there that I love, and I love it. Like, you know, I like listening to Pink, you know, singing somebody's song. You know, I like the execution. I like what she does. But the simple reality is we don't like producer-driven projects. You know what I mean? We're not, we're not about it. Hmm. You know? It's that, and it's only because where is the art, you know? of somebody telling a story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I guess that's the reason why you didn't do the Send Dog solo album. Well, Joe wanted to. That would have been a good one with what Joe. What was it called? Something Five or... Yeah, I forget, man. But he was trying to push that forever. Yeah. You guys... All right, so yeah. let's, let's touch on some of the other artists because you, you had a really an eclectic roster. Some... I, I love some of these signings and some of them were, were like, that's interesting. Let's talk about Tim Dog and what I would think had to be a lot of backlash because of Fuck Compton as a record label. Did you know what you were getting into? Oh shit, motherfucker, step to the ring chair. Cause Tim Dog is here. Let's get right down to the nitty gritty and talk about a bullshit city. Talk about a bullshit city. 
talking about niggas from Compton. They're no comp and they truly ain't stomping. Tim Dog, a black man's past. I'm so bad I whip Superman's ass. Yeah, and here's the free the great thing we did it at the time with CBS Records. Tim Dog happened for everybody. It's actually our first success, if you want to, if you come right down to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm penicillin on wax. I only did like 40,000 copies. Great record. But, though. yeah, the single, though, it was the first music video ever sold as a commercial single. We sold the VHS mm-hmm. of the video. Yep. We sold over 100,000 copies of it for nine ninety nine. Hmm. But the problem was is that hip-hop was changing, and it was becoming more of an album-oriented format. And, um, you know, the, the listeners wanted really more, more, they were looking for a narrative, you know? And Tim could break out of his thing, you know? Um, and, and, you know, the, the thing is, it's like back in the, back in the early 80s, if you had a hit song, you know, a rap song, as they called it, rap music, if you had a hit rap artist, <laughs> um, if you had a song, it's a good bet that you're going to sell albums because the single will move the albums, but not so much anymore. In the nineties is when it started to become like an album oriented format. It was almost like FM rock. You know what I mean? And, um, Tim's record just could not get that thing going, you know? And so, um, yeah, that's kind of what happened. Did you ever fear for your safety? I mean, did the label have any issues? Because I know there was a lot of people on the, the West coast that we're just not happy. Uh, I never had a problem. So you, you obviously you traveled a lot, especially with Cypress on the label. Yeah, yeah, but but I'm just the label. You know what I mean? And you also um, did the promo for NWA and Easy. I mean, you kind of yeah. Well, yeah, I, but I the artist. If my artist yeah. wants to do a record, you know, called Buck Compton, who am I to tell him he can't? You know what I mean? <laughs> Crazy. Um, all right. So another artist, and I'm making a segue from Tim Dog is um, is Cool Keith. So you guys put love, out, um, oh my God, the, I love the black, cool Keith. the black, I love cool Keith Thorne. So the black Elvis album is what you guys put out. Yep. How did that come about? Because that's not a particular roughhouse e artist. I got my shades on, big rock star compared to Elvis. Sign the autographs for rappers while girls move their pelvis. Writes on strictly for Elton John or Lionel Richie. Call up my butler, get clothes washed by the maid. I resoak, this is clean, feel like Cascade. I count the bills, roll through Detroit and sit down the bills. I throw my scully on the vehicle like Marvin Gaye. Step in the front row, prime time, I move your way. I wanted to do Dr. Octagon. Oh, okay. And uh, the Dr. Octagon album, to me, is one of my Desert Island discs. I think it's one of the greatest hip-hop records ever made. Mm-hmm. And it's the Citizen Kane of hip-hop records that embody science fiction and porn. You know what I mean? It's so innovative. Everything about it. And I, I just, it was such a record. And I knew Dan, you know, Automator Dan. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, uh, and I wanted to do that record. It's one of the only records I ever bought to Sony that I just couldn't get anybody behind it. Wow. And they said, we don't know how to market it. There's going to be the same people that buy Cypress Hill. Don't worry, just put it out. <laughs> and then Geffen uh, and Spielberg, what DreamWorks put out, the re-release See, DreamWorks of, uh, put out, yeah. yeah. But they put out the second version of it. Of it was course. the version that was independent before It was on bulk records. Rolling down the street in Detroit, Michigan, I switch 
Michigan, bucket seats with my girlfriend. Wearing Paco and a Bronco, Cologne is pronto. Moving quickly like the Lone Ranger, X is Tonto. Back up the turnpike, Oldsmobile's roll with two pipes. 440 engine blowing wind through a hair extension. Two bags of six packs, with 38s, wrapped in gift packs. Big attitude, she's on the two train. I roll like Mad Max. Yeah, that was a great record. It's cool hearing you say that you were such a fan of that because, you know, a lot of people probably don't know your taste outside of what, you know, what per- came out of Rough House. So to hear that you were, you know, that, uh, that, you know, uh, that persuaded you to, to put out a Keith record is pretty cool. So the Black Elvis album came out and I think there was a few singles off there, Living Astro, I could think of. Um, the joint with um, Sadat X was, I think, Static. Um, so what what was that like? I mean, were you a part of the process or was that album just delivered to you when, when you had signed Keith? No, we made the record. I mean, um, we um, could get Dr. Octagon um, and then he did that record and then uh, he had this manager, this kid Jeremy. Yeah, we, we just, we just, and we signed him and uh, that was the record. And I know a lot of the record got recorded out there. I think we mixed a couple tracks at our place. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, one of the problems we had with that record was uh, for some reason, uh, we were having problems getting all the, like, the metadata, all the credits and everything. Mm-hmm. And that took a long time. And some I forget what it was. It was just like a holdup. Um, but eventually the record came out. It did pretty much what we thought what it was going to do. do. You yeah. know, I never thought it was going to be a gold record. I bet we just love Cool Keith, though. Yeah, well, at that time, he was putting out music. Like, he still does. Like, every month, he seems oh to have God, a record. Oh, my God, the guy still know? does, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, another group, uh, my boy Chops, Mountain Brothers, you guys put out the uh, the paper chase. Well, they were signing you guys. Uh, that yeah. w- that was interesting because they're they're really the first, maybe the first only Asian hip hop group. Right? <laughs> you got to know your friends and enemies and those who just pretend to be the ones that go remember me with good old days and memories we never had together. Friends in fair weather, yeah, whatever. You used to have no time for us, and now you wanna rhyme with us. Come on, and split a dime with us and chicks and sisters. Nothing but loving on the mind to come to find it. It was just tricks. They robbing leech trying to live the lives of the rich and the famous. You making me sick. Let, let me tell you, chop is one of the most underrated producers in hip-hop. And he plays live. I mean, he's amazing. He's a chameleon. He knows how to adapt. He's really, he's taken on a, a you know, he, he's worked with Lil Wayne and, and Paul Wall, but uh, the Mountain Brothers, that was a really cool, that was a cool thing for Philly, too, you know, to, to, see, yeah, it was. to see that. Um, look, you guys, like I said, you, you guys have had so many. Uh, I, I would love to hear to sit and talk about you know, the John Forte shit with Carly Simon. I mean, the goats, by the way, another yeah. Philly group. Yeah, uh, well, we didn't talk about the goats. And when you guys asked about the goats. Well, those are the college days. I was going to ask, was that the biggest disappointment of the of the label or, you know? Let, let me tell let me. I'm going to tell you guys like a trivia fact about the goats, right? The goats continued after they were, this, after they, you know, imploded. The goats got more fan mail from all over the world. Then Cypress Hill, the Fugees, and Crisscross combined. Wow, how's they, that? They they played all those small college town clubs too. I mean, they really had like That's that little. Crazy. They toured all over the world, but yeah. there was something about the Goats that it was just unbelievable. That's great. So more than all those groups, you you guys yeah. um. There was a lot of tour. Tours were very big back then, like hip-hop tour. I mean, they're always big now, but they're more like festivals. You guys had like when Cypress and Fuji's, 
tell tell us like maybe one or two good stories you guys ha- have of you know take us back to like 90 I don't know any 92 93 94 95 th- those are like really the prominent years tell us you know yeah. one or two good stories you have uh, of, of you know of a story guy you know what I hate because later on I'm gonna say yeah, I should have talked about this um Cypress Hill the, the road manager tried to bring a gun through airport security how'd that work out you know <laughs> and I, you know, I, I never understood that one. <laughs> like, and you know what the story was? He forgot he had it on him. <laughs> like how high do you have to be? It's like you're in an airport security line. You're going through the thing. You see metal detectors and everything. And it's like, you know, I'm like, okay, let me get my wallet, my keys. Let me get my shit together. Let me get your gun. You know, it's like... <laughs> The uh, well, they are they are Cypress Hill. So, what would you expect? Yeah. Another wacky yeah. kind of a dude. I don't know how wacky he was back then. But it was DMX. You guys had uh, put out the the Born Yeah, Loser we did single. the first DMX record. DMX, it came to us through Kurt Woodley, uh, who's an NR guy we have up in New York, and song Born Loser. You know, it's funny, if you listen to that song and you look at when it came out, totally ahead of its time. And the reason that we ended up not continuing with DMX is because we had so much going on, we almost got a little too busy. And... Uh, I think it like the, we missed the option, you know, we just, we missed it. Uh, Sony at the time, or they still labeled through this, uh, people who are in, uh, like a business like that, where you have people sign personal service agreements that have option periods and everything, computers are set up with ticklers to tell you, you know, like they warn you ahead of time, option coming in, decide, tell, decide what you're going to do. And, uh, he had already, uh, kind of like fell in with the, with the Rough Riders people and our, you know what I mean? But here's the thing. I'll say this. Rough Riders did an unbelievable job with DMX. And I don't know if we'd have done as well. Yeah. Well, he, again, you know what I mean? He was a different, different artist. Well, they today. learned how to market him rather than his music. It was marketing was first. And I think that your theory is music first. So it's, it's, yeah, it's always, it's always music first. Yeah. Look, you know, here's the thing. If you're not creating your own market, then you're in trouble. I had a conversation a couple weeks ago with a company and it had something to do with Miss Lauren Hill and the same company was doing something it's not a record company with Mary J. Blige. What they had done for Mary J. Blige, they thought, well, it worked for Mary J. Blige. It could work for her. And I'm like, okay, they're both African-American. They're both female and they're both R&B singers that came out of the hip hop generation. Right. But that's where the similarity ends. You know what I mean? You know, the same reason like with, with Sony when in the miseducation, they wanted Puffy, they wanted Tone and Poke, they wanted this, they want all these different people. And it's like, why 
you know, look at Klus on the record, what that did, and look what he did. It's like, you know, they wanted her to fit into the 90s R&B commercial cut, cookie cutter for the R&B thing, right? And again, if you're not creating your own market, then don't do it. You know what I mean? Because if an artist is not unique and different enough to me that I think they're going to go out and create their own market, I don't see any point in doing it. It's true. It's true. All right, look, I'm going to give you a mulligan on that tour story. So I'm going to ask you, give me your best Tommy Matola story. And do any oh, of those. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I'll, give you, yeah. I'll give you two of them. Give me two. Um, I'll give you two. Give me, give me two. Um, we, we were at a party for Crisscross, and Tommy, Donnie, and I were standing there, and Crisscross stood in front of us, and we took a picture. The picture came out two weeks later in Rolling Stone. I was cut out of the picture. That sounds like Tommy. I call up Rolling Stone (laughs) and Rolling Stone said, this is how we got it. Wow. Wow. Yep. All right. So that's that. And then, uh, my favorite Tommy story of all time. Actually, I have two of them. They kind of go together. I was doing a radio or a TV interview on a CNBC power lunch and talking about the record business and stuff. And as soon as I hung up, my phone rings, and it's an executive from Columbia Records. And I'm not going to say the guy's name because he's still a friend till this day, and you know I don't want to embarrass him. But he started telling me all the stuff about, you know, Tommy really likes you, but Tommy likes you know the guys under him to be kind of laid back and this and that. And it's really Tommy should be talking to the press because Tommy's a star and all this shit. Yep. And, but the guy's coming off to me like in a really weird kind of frequency. Like I've never, his demeanor had totally different from when I usually talk to him. And I realize that he's sitting there and I'm thinking Tommy's sitting right in front of him. You know what I mean? So later on, after the miseducation comes out, she is scheduled to do a show in Japan and for the Sony people. So I'm going with her and uh, Sony had our itinerary and everything. So about a week before we're going to leave, I get a phone call from Donnie's office saying, uh, Chris, uh, Donnie needs you to come up and have a meeting with Danny DeVito. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, cool, yeah, uh, when? And she gives me a day. I said, can't do it. I'm going to be in Japan with, with, you know, Lauren Hill. And she was like, well, Chris, you know, we know that, but this is really, really important. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Donnie or T- Tommy really needs you to be there. And so I said, um, okay. I go and I tell Kevin Glickman, who's my in-house attorney. And uh, Kevin said, I got a hundred bucks. It'll say that after Miss Hill's plane takes off, they're going to cancel that meeting. I said, that'll never happen. The day the plane takes off. Now it's the night before the meeting with Tommy Matola and Danny DeVito. Tommy's office calls. Oh, uh, Danny had to do some reshoots. We need to postpone the meeting. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So Tommy does live up to all those uh, all those uh, rumors. Oh yeah, he he he. I don't think he wanted me going to Japan and talking to the Sony people there. But you know what's really fucked up about this? What what would I say to them? 
Who am I? Yeah, no, I, I get it, but you know what? As, 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 far, as far as the 70 people can tell, I'm just some guy alone on the tour. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to, you know, you know, go, like, make my presence known to all these people. I don't give a shit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that was the crazy thing about it. Well, for, it's like, are you really that paranoid? For what it's worth, Tommy did this apparently with everybody, including Mariah. Right. I mean, he had to be the star front and center. So, um, you know, I, I wanted um, I wanted the listeners to hear that. And so, look, let's let's definitely plug the book. It is out. I got mine off Amazon. It's called Rough House, and it's a uh, it's a great book. It's a great read. And even though you 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 said a lot, as Howard says, you said you said a lot. You uh, <laughs> you you've covered a lot, but the book has so much more. And like I said, Philly. Oh yeah, yeah. Philly itself has a rich history of music, and there's such great stories. And Schoolie's to me, yeah. Schoolie's a legend. I mean, he's he's the original gangster rapper. I mean, um, absolutely. You know, uh, so I always do this with our guests. I always ask them one tough question. But for you, I'm gonna just say, if there's one particular album that you guys put out that you still listen to frequently, what is it? I know you've had a lot, but there's, there's uh, no. See, you know what's hard about that is that um, is that because I don't listen to whole albums. You know, um, I put out a Beanie Siegel record in 2012 called "This Time," mm-hmm. and I'm actually going back and rediscovering it. Really? That, yeah, that Isn't was that bizarre. That was off the was like Rough Nation when you guys did the Rough Nation. Yeah, no, it was Rough House. No, it was, oh, rough house. It was rough, okay. It was Rough House. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's really bizarre. So Beanie, I meet with Beanie, and he's like, "I got 16 songs." We go to the studio, we listen to 16 songs. He says, "I own these songs. I own all the publishing and everything." Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Cool." Well, all we gotta do is mix and put it out. So I get an advance. I was a through EMI, and um, I give him like a lot of money, like first half the album, because the record's done while we're doing this mixing. We mix it, master it, deliver it to EMI, and suddenly getting phone calls from lawyers, producers, writers, managers. Oh, he doesn't own that. He doesn't own that song, this song, that song, that song. And we had to use the second half of the advance and all the promo money. Like It's the worst place to be in. To, when you're doing something like that after the record's pressed up you're negotiating right and so there was a lot of angst and a lot of things happened but then the other thing was that he had pleaded guilty to income tax evasion I didn't know this I just thought he had tax problems he, he didn't tell me nobody told me met with his lawyers and he said oh yeah we've just been pushing the sentencing off the day he got sentenced was the day of the release of the record judge gave us eight weeks to go out and do promotion. I had him booked on Jimmy Kimmel, radio interviews. That night, he got into trouble and got arrested, went right to jail. I just kind of put it out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And it happened to be on a, um, on a uh, Dropbox file that ended up on my phone because I was downloading something else. And so I'm kind of, I've been listening to it in the car. <laughs> just because I'm coming around these songs I've listened to in a long time, and I'm like, "Wow, a song was dope for its day." Right. But uh, in terms of like the convention, uh, the traditional roughhouse, uh, I'd have to say that the um, that the the miseducation, the y- class and all the Cypress stuff. You know, the first two Cypress Hill albums, you know, um, are always are always like good go tos. Sure. Uh, uh, I like a lot of the goats. You know. 
Well, Jay kind of talks about those tracks that you listen to still. It, given that you had um, Quest Love as an intern, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know if you even had the opportunity of signing The Roots before uh, Wendy Goldstein and and Geffen, but was there, a, was there a miss that you really regret not getting on the label that you had an opportunity to? He said Arrested Development, they went on to yeah. be like quadruple platinum. Well, well, I'll tell you who I passed on. I passed on Arrested Development, um, House of Pain. Oh, you guys know the House of Pain story, right? No. No. Oh. You ever hear at the, at the end of the House of Pain jump around where he said this one goes out to Joe the Biter Niccolo? Oh, yeah, 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 sure. They had a song called Jump. Oh, it wasn't on the demo. That's right. That's right. It was, yep. Well, Chris Cross. It wasn't on the demo. Mm-hmm. And their, one half of their management, Amanda Shear, calls me up one day and she says, So, you guys, Chris Cross has a song called Jump. And I'm like, Yeah. Well, House of Pain has a song called Jump. And you guys stole it and <laughs> gave it to Chris Cross. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, like, it was so absurd. And you know why it was absurd? Because everything that Criss Cross did, including their clothes, everything was written and conceived by Jermaine Dupree. Yep. Who was probably one of the most underrated guys in the hip-hop world. Right? And he's actually also the first um, person under the age of 18 to have a multi-platinum record. This producer, but anyhow, uh, she's trying to say that she was trying to tell me that jump was on the original demo tape. And I said, really? I said, Amanda, hold one second. I run, I run into the studio in the office and I, cause I, I remember where the tape was and I got it and I came back at the cassette. I said, okay, I'm, at, I'm listening to the songs on the cassette. This song, that song, that song. There's no song called jump on this cassette. Right. But you know, they couldn't let it go. And um, Everlast was convinced somehow that, that we stole his. And, you know, you know, it's funny. If you listen to Jump Around by Crisscross, there's really, they're really not, there's nothing alike about the two nothing. songs at all. Nothing, yeah, at nothing at all. Nothing at all. Yeah. I mean, Other than and, the name. Yeah. And it's all, it's all production yeah. driven anyway. But what was it like working? And the thing is, Jump was a big thing in the club then, you know? Well, you know, the, the thing in the dance where you get to a frenzy and you're at a show and, you know, like everybody starts jumping. That's what that, that's what that was all about. So it wasn't like this thing that like nobody invented it. You know what I mean? No one person came up with it. So uh, what was it like working with, uh, with Jermaine Dupri? I think it's cool. Jermaine's cool. Well, he's, he's a genius. It, he's a genius. Did he, so he was really the one who had to not only mentor, but, you know, really kind of. I guess manage he managed crisscross, but they had. Um, I mean, unfortunately, one of them died. Right? I, I was it Mac yeah, Daddy. Yeah, yeah, Chris Kelly passed away. Now, do you think a lot of that had to do with just his? He, you know, he was a superstar at such a young age. Yeah, I, I, I talk about this all the time now. It seems on podcasts. Uh, here's what it is: when you're a child star in music, mm-hmm. look, the Jonas Brothers were a kids group, right? The Jackson Five were a kids group. Okay, certain groups can can you can be a kids group and you can involve, right? 
Yeah. The problem with crisscross is that look at the name. The name is a connotation of the backwards. They're wearing their clothes backwards, yeah. right? It's kind of like for them, and here's what the problem is, and I know it's just maybe a weird analogy. When the people that were listening to them are getting older and now they're not listening to Jay-Z and, and DMX and what have, whatever, right? Chris Cross's fan base left the playground, right? The problem was Chris Cross couldn't leave the playground because if they left, the playground goes with them. You know what I mean? I don't know how you, in the world of hip-hop, how you make something like that mature because they're always, they're always going to be crisscross. Yeah. Well, it, you know what I mean? Of course. And, and I, and I think, you know, that's a very hard thing to, to, to come, to come over, you know, to get over, you know, it's like, you know, you sold millions and millions of records. You're on tour with Michael Jackson, you know? And it's like, and now it's like, you're, you're not relevant and you're going to have a hard time, you know, now Joe signed them. When when we ended Roughhouse and went our separate ways, Joe signed him to RCA, but I don't think that the record ever came out, you know. And, and God bless him for trying, you know. But you know, by that point, they were like you know teenagers, and I don't know how you how you do that, you know. Like I, I don't know how to. I wouldn't know how to do it. Well, you know, you and Joe made a really good team. I know you guys don't play on the same team anymore, but. You both had very important roles. I mean, it seems like from what I gathered in the book, I mean, you were always hustling. You had that drive, you know? Yeah. Joe Joe had an ear and he was really meticulous when it came to mixing. But you had like that business sense. And I think together you guys really, I mean, you did. You really gave hip hop uh, and music in general a lot of, a, a lot of good good stuff to really hang your head on and i mean like i said classics after classics you guys are responsible for so you know i appreciate what you've done i thank you for this interview because i i can thank sit, you i can talk to you all night but i want the readers to really pick up the book because there's so much more there and um you know whether you're a cypress fan or a lauren fan cool keith fan there there's really something uh, in this book for everyone and um you know like i said i can't thank you enough no problem. Always yeah, great. Cool. Thank man. you. And, and you know what? If, if you're interested, there's some other interviews there that you may. No, I'm going to check them out. Yeah, I'm check, check it out. them out. It's really, by the way, guys, uh, very, very nice book, too. Cool. I appreciate, appreciate it, it, man. Thanks again, yeah. Chris. You're right. Talk to you guys soon. Take care. Have a good night. Bye bye. Bye. This is Chris Schwartz, CEO of Rough House Records, and you're listening to Take It Personal. Thanks for joining us on episode 52. Make sure you stay tuned in to Take a Personal Radio and subscribe to all of our platforms and forums. You can always drop by our website at takeapersonalradio.com and catch up on all of our favorite episodes, interviews, and remixes by DJ360. Leave a comment on our message board and interact with the crew. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to support, Take It Personal is now on Patreon. We have monthly memberships starting at just a buck. Your support is greatly appreciated.